the world perceives people a certain way. And it just opens your mind to at the end of the day, we're all the same. We might have different religions. We might have different cultures. But at the end of the day, people are deeply compassionate and they connect. And it's the, this idea of human connection, which all cultures value. Hey, I'm Jordan Harding. I grew up watching my dad put on that suit and tie every morning and go out to successfully climb the corporate ladder. I thought I wanted to be him, but I was wrong. I needed to be me. To do that, I had conversations with incredible people to learn how they figured out this whole thing called life. I learned how they overcome adversity and pick themselves up when they've been knocked down. Now, I'm sharing those discussions with you so you can apply those same learnings to your life. Welcome to It's Not a Straight Line. So today on It's Not a Straight Line, I am with Andy Vasily. Andy is a cognitive and performance coach and podcaster. Andy, I believe your background is a physical education teacher. You've taught at international baccalaureate schools uh, in many different places across the globe. So Cambodia, China, Azerbaijan, now Saudi Arabia. We'll mm -hmm. get into that. You've got this amazing podcast with over 200 episodes called the Run Your Life Podcast. And uh, I listened to the last few. It's interesting how you speak about fear, flow, and would love to hear more about that. Right now, you're faculty consult, faculty and consultant at KAUST, which I think mm -hmm. goes by Coast or Cost. Mm -hmm. With your podcast, you bring on inspiring leaders from professional sports, health and wellness, education, really trying to unpack what excellent me excellence means. And uh, today as well, we'll get into some of your background with, you know, being connected to people and family members that have struggled from mental health and addiction. Um, but really, you fit well into this topic of it's not a straight line. So welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you so much, Jordan. Uh, you know, it's amazing the way the world works and small world connections. So our, you know, you're one of your guests, Oliver Gleason is a very dear friend of mine. He's like a brother. And uh, my family and I went back to Canada this summer. And the day that we were going to spend the night at his house, he had just recorded an episode with you. I saw, I think that was around June 20th or something. And uh, he told me about you and what you're doing. And as soon as he said the name of your podcast, I was like, oh, that's a pretty cool name for a podcast, because that is the metaphor for life, right? So uh, in advance to the conversation, I want to thank you for having me on and, you know, just uh, allowing me to share whatever I can for your audience. That's great. And yes, Oliver was on uh, two episodes ago. Uh, so I encourage people to go listen to that and shout out to him for making the connection. And for those that can't, for the, the listener who can't see uh, who's with us today, you're wearing a sweet Canada shirt. So I appreciate that. You're a proud Canadian. Um, you know, to start off, Andy, I've seen some, you know, you're putting out these great, great quotes on LinkedIn, and I assume you do that regularly. Is there, is there one quote that's really stood out to you in the last few weeks that, that has guided those last few weeks? Yeah, that's an amazing question because uh, my family, we live in Saudi Arabia and my wife and I, uh, we are both very much uh, devoted and spend a lot of time and energy 
uh, learning about things that matter to us. So we have, right, if you imagine our house in Saudi, uh, you open up the front door and as soon as you walk in on the left-hand side is a large chalkboard wall. So we got the chalkboard paint and we painted a this entire wall as soon as you come uh, inside the house. And so it's about maybe two meters by two meters. And we always put up quotes there in chalk, right? And they're quotes for us and for our boys. Our boys are 17 and 18. And, um, you know, we've involved them in this journey of learning. And now that they're older, they're starting to connect the dots and understand what learning is about and what finding meaning and purpose is about. So today I just changed the quote. It's the quote that I had up there was up there for a few months. And now I have a Theodore Roosevelt quote, which is uh, from his man in the arena speech. So I'll, I'll share it with you. So the quote is, it's not the critic who counts. It's not the man who points out how, how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done it better. The credit belongs to the person who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred with blood, sweat, and dust who at their very best in the end knows the triumph of high achievement and who at worst, if he fails, he fails daring greatly. And I heard that quote years ago, but over the past couple of years, I've really kept it close to my heart because that's everything that I'm striving to do in life. You know, and it's, it's this idea of you, you have to put yourself in the arena and that's what matters. You can't be in the cheap seats. You can't be above kind of thinking about what it's like to be in the arena, like yourself taking a chance with your podcast. You know, it's a chance, you know, it's a risk to put yourself out there and to have your voice heard and to share whatever message is connected to your heart and what you feel you have to share with the world. That's a risk. That's vulnerability. And for me, that's what it's been like. And over the last couple of years, I really feel like, um, through COVID, through it all, it's like you, you have to put yourself out there. You have to stay aligned. You have to uh, continue to pursue what matters most. So those types of quotes really matter to me. So good question today, because I literally changed the quote two hours ago. And I the worst part is I wrote too big and I couldn't fit it in. And it took me an hour and I had to get the the bucket and the the sponge and wash it all down and start over. <laughs> but I got it up there. I'll send a picture picture to you uh, after. But yeah, I'd really like to share that yeah. with, with the audience and when we put the podcast out. And it's a great quote. I, I know Brené Brown, who I I read a lot about. Mm. You know her. I read her books and listen to her podcast. She always mentions that. Mm -hmm. Speaking about being in the arena and maybe going back to your your earlier life and your, you know, adventure and journey to become a, uh, I think you call it a pedagogical, I can never pronounce that word. Yeah. My sister would be yelling at me, who's a teacher, but a, a coordinator and a teacher um, mm -hmm. who's traveled all over the world. Like your first one, I think was Hiroshima. You definitely put yourself in that arena and said, I'm going to go after it. I'm going to be international. And you know, what did that feel like for you? Were you someone who would take on stepping out of your comfort zone like that? Or was that really a first for you when you did that first big move? So that would have been 1997. And uh, I, I had just finished playing football at the university. And I, 
I wasn't sure if I wanted to join the police force. Um, I thought about applying to the police force. A lot of my uh, football buddies either became teachers, firemen, or, or um, teachers, firemen, or policemen. Oliver's turned into a lawyer, uh, but Oliver would have been a great teacher, you know, or cop or firefighter. So that was kind of the predominant mindset back then. And for me, I thought, I don't know about the police force, but I worked with young offenders in Windsor and uh, I had a full-time job as a child youth worker working in a young offenders facility. And I thought, okay, this is my calling. And then my wife at the time graduated from university and she had a chance to go to Hiroshima, Japan for six months for a kind of a, it's called a working holiday visa. So she was able to get a job working 24 hours a week at an Italian restaurant as a host that seats people. It was like an international restaurant. So she said, you have to come over. There's lots of opportunity here. And I thought, there's no way I'm going to Japan. And then I was like, okay, I'll go to Japan. <laughs> so I ended up uh, jumping on a plane in, in, at Metro Airport. And I remember literally being so incredibly afraid to leave Canada because I had traveled a little bit, but uh, I wasn't always I, I, within my comfort zone. I took chances, but this was stepping way beyond my comfort zone. But I had studied Japanese for three months before going. I knew I was going. I took a leave of absence and then that ended up being um, 10 years. We stayed in Japan. Uh, so at the time, though, it was a massive risk and it felt very uncomfortable. And I remember literally being in tears, like, why am I doing this? Why am I leaving what's so comfortable? Uh, yet feeling someplace within me, an anchor point that said, I think you're capable of this. And this is maybe what you're meant to do. And let's just jump on the plane and go and see what happens. And was it, did you think, you were going to be there for 10 years? No. No, we thought we were going to be there for six months. My wife was a nurse. Uh, by then, I had decided I wanted to be a teacher. So we thought we'd go back to Windsor, kind of start a life there. We weren't married yet, but um, we thought we'd go back to Windsor, kind of start a life there and just settle in. And, and we actually, after three years, we went back and we tried it out for half a year. And we're like, nope, we're going back to Hiroshima. And uh, our companies gave us jobs back. Uh, by then, we were teaching. We, she was no longer working in the, the restaurant. Um, so then we went back and we had our boys were born there. And then that's when we really started to see what was possible. And we left Japan in 2007. We were going to go back to Canada. But then I realized, oh, my God, there's a whole world of international schools. I didn't even know they existed until I actually started to meet some colleagues who had worked at other schools and they said, you can go anywhere in the world. And then that's when uh, I applied all over the place. And then Azerbaijan, we moved there and um, we worked at a school for a couple of years there before moving to Cambodia, then to China for five years and then uh, to Saudi Arabia. So, you know, that's 97. So you're looking, that's a long time ago, right? So 25 years actually. And so how does a Canadian that's in Hiroshima become a teacher? Like, did you have to go to teacher's college there? Is it a different certification process? 
we went back to that was the year we went back the the short time we went back it was for me to go to teachers college so which is a one-year program and when we knew that um, and then my wife went back to do her nursing board exams so that would have been 2000 um, and then we at that point instead of staying in Canada she had a many job offers to nurse and then I could have easily uh, got a job working in elementary school or high school or whatever it was, but we decided to go back. And then that's when the Hiroshima International School kind of offered us jobs and we jumped on it. So what do uh, like some of your family and friends that are here in Canada and maybe haven't gotten out of their comfort zone like that? Think about your career and all these places you've gone to, and they probably still say to you, are you going to, you going to come back to Canada someday? Like, like, What's the reaction? And do you just think it's, it's, it's your life, I guess, right? It's what you've done. Yeah. It, our boys are considered to be third culture kids. So third culture kids are children, uh, for example, Canadians, they have Canadian passport, but they've never lived in Canada. So they're third culture kids. They're used to growing up around the world. So, you know, our family and friends, the initial years would be a bit curious, like, okay, haha, when's it over? When are you coming back? And they were quite intrigued in the beginning. And we would bring back like gifts and souvenirs, and we would try to explain what it's like. But the longer we stayed away, the less curiosity there was. So it, it was kind of interesting, because we come back, like, completely changed by the experience. You know, international travel and seeing culture and uh, different religions and different people from around the world uh, opens you up to new experiences and the beauty within people, you know, and the longer we stayed away, interestingly enough, the less curious people became, because I think for them, I don't want to say this is not in a negative way, but for people who have never left their comfort zone like that it's you can't comprehend what it's like to pick up and move to another country so they would say oh how are things and we would say oh great and this is what it's like and that's usually where the conversation would stop because there's there's just no more curiosity about it because they can't comprehend what it's like to actually live life in a completely different culture and country so we just learned to not be upset that people weren't curious about our experiences, but just embrace being back in Canada, connecting with family. And so now we get very few questions about what it's like to live abroad. They just understand that's who they are. That's what they do. And, and that's it. Yeah. It's such, it's such a good learning. It's like when, uh, you know, I went on exchange in my third year and when you come back, it was the same thing. Like you didn't get all of those questions about your travel. And at first you can be a little frustrated by it, but you know, that's, that's great advice. Where did, where did you go? I was in France. Oh, okay. I was in France at a school called uh, ESC Rouen. So it was in Normandy. Okay. Um, and then I think I mentioned to you before, my sister had the opportunity to teach in Switzerland for a year at a private school called Tassus. And, you know, what an unbelievable experience. And she experienced the same thing you did of people that, you know, go from school to school in different countries and, and just have these amazing enriching experiences. Has there, 
I assume you've run into a lot of situations where you, you know, you may be frustrated by something in the culture that doesn't resonate or you can't speak the language and you can't get something done. What has, what are some of the biggest lessons that's come out of all this travel and maybe even seeing it through your kids' eyes, you now have realized some of the, the things you've learned throughout all that time. I think one of the things that, biggest things is the beauty of the human spirit is common wherever you go in the world or in Saudi, Saudi gets a bad rap on the media. And yeah, we work with Saudis every day who are lovely, wonderful people who raise their kids, just like we raise our kids who are great parents, who are good friends to one another, who value, um, hospitality and who bring you into their culture and i think it opens your mind to the world perceives people a certain way and it just opens your mind to at the end of the day we're all the same we might have different religions we might have different cultures but at the end of the day people are deeply compassionate and they connect and it's the, this idea of human connection, which all cultures value. So what you see on the news is not what we experience here. I can give an example of just a, a wonderful Saudi woman who I talk to every day, who's like a, just a, has a beautiful spirit. She walks around with a smile every day. She was educated in Canada. She came back to Saudi, um, just full of life, full of energy, full of appreciation, full of gratitude you know, and it's, it's just, that's one of the biggest lessons is no matter where you are, whether we're in China, Cambodia, Azerbaijan, Japan, just people are wonderful, you know, and at the end of the day, they're just like us. On the flip side, there are cultural things that can kind of frustrate you when we're in Japan, for example, the Japanese have this expression, uh, which is shogunai, which is, it can't be helped. It is what it is. And I remember my early years in Japan, I'm playing American football. I'm the only foreigner on the team. Maybe uh, Oliver came out to play a couple of times and then a couple other Canadians from time to time. But I remember being so upset with some bad calls by the referees and they're clearly terrible calls. <laughs> and, and I'm like trying to say in half Japanese and English, like that's, a, that's a bad call. That's not, and my teammates are saying, shogunai, shogunai, shogunai. It can't be helped. It is what it is. And, and I would get so pissed off and I would say, it's not shogunai, shogunai. Like, no, no, it's not that it's just a bad call. And I realized over time that that's the Japanese spirit and the Japanese culture is you, you got to accept what you can't control. You can't control a bad call by a referee, but in our culture, Western culture, we're used to flying off the rails and, and going ballistic if there's any injustice in, in a sports game. So that was one of my big learnings. And it, it was after about three years of playing football or four years where I was just like, mm, Shogunai. Yeah, I get it. <laughs> you know, there's no use losing your shit over it. You know, it's just you have to accept it and, and move on. So there's been lots of little kind of life uh, learning and insights over the years. Uh, that's you know, amazing. Being, yeah. 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 Shogunai. That's, you know, cause there's so many things in life that, you know, are not in our control 
as soon as we can, we can really get comfortable with that. I think it makes certain things easier. Mm -hmm. So Andy, when I look at your career and what I've been able to gather online, it, it looks like you're, you know, a teacher, you're a speaker, you're a workshop leader, you're a certified cognitive coach, and you have your incredible podcast. Uh, which I encourage everyone to check out. What, how do you describe your career and what is a certified cognitive coach? So a cognitive coach is a, um, I'm certified in cognitive coaching, which is this idea of coaching in a way that uh, you wear four hats as a cognitive coach. So you, you're an evaluator. So you evaluate performance, but that's not really what it's about, but that is one of the hats you are a coach, meaning that you try to unlock the internal resources within the person you're coaching. So rather telling them what to do, being the knowledge authority, knowing what they should work on, you are trusting in their inner capacity to figure it out on their own. So you try to unlock what's within them. And then there's that idea of being a collaborator, collaborator where you're working alongside them uh, on a plan a plan of action of some sort, or you are, um, you know, stepping in as a consultant when you see that they have to work on something and you say, this is what you need to work on. So there's four hats, but we, you know, I usually operate within the coaching and the collaboration. I, I wear those hats. So it's, it's this idea of like working along somebody, understanding their goals, uh, understanding what they want to work on and then helping them to evaluate their own performance through data collection and trying to figure out what is the best data to gather in order for them to really evaluate their own performance. And then that cognitive coaching led me to executive coaching with leaders and business owners and CEOs. And I do a lot of that now. And that is kind of the same. I mean, the cognitive coaching really complements my work as an executive coach, uh, but it's executive coaching is very contextual and it's, it's based on what the client needs in the moment to be their best. And oftentimes what happens, it can be personal or professional. And a lot of coaches will separate personal and professional. Yes. But I believe that performance is very much dependent on getting the personal right. And when we get the personal right, then we create the conditions to thrive. So there's, you know, it's, it's kind of like a, an evolution, but it's, it's working with people in a way that understands their context and really zeroing in on where is the bottleneck, where are they stuck and where do they need to, um, unblock themselves in order to perform at their best. So that's cognitive coaching sliding into executive coaching, which is what I do a lot of now. And did you, did you need to get a certification in that? Yes. What, which yeah. one do you have? Cause I've had a few great coaches on this podcast before. Yeah. So I have both. So I I'm certified in cognitive coaching. I'm in the, the final stages right now of my executive coaching but the cognitive coaching, as I said, is like a perfect segue into executive coaching. So I'll have my executive coaching certification in the neuroscience of flow, which is just a fascinating topic, but um, I'll have that probably over the next three or four months. 
Um, but despite not having that, my cognitive coaching certification really, you know, overlaps greatly in, in the work that I do in executive coaching. So uh, they complement each other. So, and then I have a degree in psychology as well, which really backs up both types of coaching. And do you still work full time at, at an international school? Like, are you there Monday yeah. to Friday? Is that kind of, yeah. Yeah, Sunday to Thursday, because the weekend is Friday, Saturday here in the Middle East. Um, so I, I still have a full-time job. I'm, I'm coaching. I'm still teaching and moving towards when my kids gradu- graduate, moving towards like f- I was full-time consulting before I came here seven years ago um, and doing some coaching, but moving towards in a couple of years to going back to full-time coaching and consulting. So my youngest I just entered grade 11. So when he's done, when he graduates from grade 12, I will work independently again, but I do a lot of coaching and consulting in the off hours. So I'll be, I'll be traveling to uh, Hungary next month and Brazil later in the year and on, on my holiday time to do this type of work, which I I'm very passionate about. So it's like, I have my full-time job and then I have my other full-time job and I love both. You know, I'm very lucky that yeah it sounds like you have such a, a fulfilling career you know i i can imagine in the name of the podcast and the subject not a straight line like i i i doubt you thought that did you think this might be what you were doing like when you were in your like late late teens 20s no yeah what well what about you you know like when you think about that and and knowing you know i just in in knowing you and like most of us, our parents had very linear careers. You do this to get this, to get that, to get this, and then you retire. And not that that was unfulfilling in any way, but that was the way it was done. And there was no other way. That's just what you did. And if you worked outside of that circle, you were truly, um, I don't know what to call it, but you were a, an outlier. Yeah. So you, an you know, anomaly. Yeah. Yeah. And you talk about, you know, your dad working 30 years and following a certain path. And then you feeling a pressure to kind of follow along the same path as your father. How did you come about taking a chance to do what you do? Yeah. I like, like, I like how you flipped the script there to pot, true podcast host. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was really, you know, I was lucky because and fortunate and privileged because, you know, my dad had a great career and my mom was a teacher and you know uh money maybe in the early days for us might have been more of an issue but later on it it wasn't as much you know my dad and my mom were always like follow your passions so you know I did a finance degree and then wanted to go into sport and business and was able to just take a shot in sports sponsorship sales and it's kind of led me on my route to the not-for-profit world and then I've always really enjoyed speaking and learning from people, which led to, you know, taking a shot at hosting a podcast. So that begins with the support of your parents, because they allowed you to have the voice that you needed to have to ultimately, uh, I guess, have the autonomy to do what you wanted to do. And they supported that. They did. And it was really finding my own voice, though, that took a while, because even though they would say, hey, we'll be proud of you no matter what you do, 
still when I was looking at, you know, what my father had done, who he became as an executive, I thought that that still would be the thing that would please them and other people, even though that's not what was being told to me. And I, you know, I mentioned on this and I want to get into the topic. I think I was very hard on myself to do well right away. And I looked at other people around me who might've been making twice my salary and knowing that I was capable of probably doing that as well, but having to be a little bit more patient. And, you know, that probably led to a lot of some of the things I went through with anxiety and, you know, having depression at a time and putting a lot of pressure on myself. And I think I learned those things too, from my parents, you know, they, you know, they, uh, some of that stuff runs, runs, you learn it from people, right? It's a learned thing. And sometimes you're breathing in anxiety, uh, and worry from other people and you don't even know it when you're growing up. And, you know, I'd love to maybe you comment on that. You said in your Ted talk, I saw your Ted talk, you know, 20 to 25% of people are directly or indirectly, uh, you know, they have an experience with mental health or addiction or and addiction. And I, I would assume that's got to be higher now in terms of people indirectly exposed to it. Um, you know, you, you say you've, you've stayed, you've been able to kind of, you know, stay away from those things, but I know in your family, you know, there's been challenges with those things. What do you think allowed you to or allows you to stay mentally fit as you strive for your own excellence? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And still one that I constantly am asking myself. And when I look back on early life and may, you know, being the youngest, you're not really seen, you mm. know, the, you know, I was came from a family of five and, you know, I talked about uh, in my Ted talk, losing two brothers, one uh, committed suicide and another one, I died of drug addiction and both parents alcoholics and you know they did the best that they could we were a middle class family um but you learn to hide you just learn to hide and not be seen especially as the youngest and in looking back on my life i always thought it was physical activity and sport that saved my life but it was my ability to hide and not be seen to not subject myself to the dysfunction in the house. So you walk out the door first thing in the morning and you just walk into the woods and you go explore all day long. And then you come home and then you do the same thing. And some days were okay in the house. It, it was like in my Ted talk, I said it was like a storm on the horizon, always about to hit at unpredictable times, causing great chaos and turmoil. You, you don't know when the storm's going to hit in a family like that. It could just hit one day and then it could be smooth sailing for three days. So you grow up in a way that uh, you never know what to expect, which means you have to protect yourself and go into self-preservation mode. And I, in reflecting back, I think that's what saved me, but also uh, physical activity and sport. When I got to middle school and high school, I was playing football and golf and and then really having that purpose, that crystal clear purpose that football was for me. I was a quarterback. I was a punter. I taught myself to punt the football. And I remember at, uh, you know, 12 years old, 11, 12, 13 years old, 
punting the football every day. I didn't have a coach. I just taught myself to punt the football out in the street in the Canadian winters. Amazing. Amazing. Shoveling a little rectangle where I could take my four steps and punt the ball, you know, and I'd have three or four footballs and I'd punt and I'd go collect them and then come back to the, my little rectangular patch and then take my steps and punt. And then ultimately that led me to playing university football. And uh, as a quarterback punter, I became captain of my university team. So later in life, it was physical activity and sport that absolutely gave me the direction. And when my brothers were struggling, uh, you know, I never missed a practice in 11 years because I couldn't. And failing out of school was not an option because if I failed out of school, I couldn't play football. So I did what I had to do to play football. It wasn't about getting a degree. And then suddenly by my second or third year, I was like, shit, I'm going to walk out with a university degree. And then I started to become focused on that. And I was like, God, I didn't realize it's not about football, but it's also about the, the, the blessing of football gave me a degree. So it wasn't about a degree at first. It was about, I have to keep playing football because this is what I need to do. And you know, you talk about quotes and over the years, you know, another quote that really uh, resonates with me that I hold close to my heart is the power broker in your life is the voice that no one hears. How well you revisit the tone and content of your private voice is what determines the quality of your life. It is the master storyteller and the stories we tell ourselves create our reality. You know, that quote is so incredibly important to me because uh, we all have our own uh, kind of inner narratives, our personal narratives that we bring with us through life. And as we go through life, experiences happen. And then as a result of these experiences, they either reinforce the narrative that we have created for ourselves. So if if we have this doom and gloom type of personal narrative, then we will look to reinforce that narrative. But creating an empowering narrative requires us to look at the positive and to look at the good and to look at the resilience within. And being almost killed in an accident in Cambodia, um, that forced me to realize my blessings in life and forced me, gave me that shoulder tap from the universe to say, you know, you got to start really thinking about your purpose and what you're meant to do. And uh, that's what I've really focused on the last, you know, 10 or 12 years is really reshaping my narrative. So I am not the addiction. I am not the depression. I'm not the anxiety. I'm not the death. I'm not the depression. I'm not the suicide in my family. I am my own journey that I have created by taking a risk and, and living courageously and trying to continually align my thoughts, my words, my actions to live the life that I want to live for myself, for my wife, for my boys. And I think that's been kind of the most powerful moments um, is to understand the power of personal narrative. Mm. And, and, you know, so when you think about your own life and the direction you've taken, you know, narrative is everything. And what you tell yourself is everything. And you can look at what's not working. You can look at all the shit. You can look at the dysfunction. I'm not saying you personally, 
but I'm just saying people in general can look at everything that's not working and, and fall victim to the shit and what's not working. And what matters most is to really grab a hold of your own narrative and to live the life um, that you desire to live, but it's not gonna manifest itself just by chance. You gotta double down, you gotta do the work, you've gotta do the consistent work to put yourself in the best position possible to move towards your desired life. So that's, you know, kind of, a, I went off a little bit, but I hope it connects back to Oh, it does. Does. And that, that is so powerful. Like you mentioned that two parents that were, you know, struggled with alcohol, you know, a brother from addiction that passed and then someone, a brother who's succumbed to his mental health um, challenges. And, and, and yes, you had, I guess it was a car accident in Cambodia. Is that correct? Yeah. It was a bus bus accident. So like I was, a bus was backing up into a group of kids and I ran up to try to, it was a soccer tournament and um, the bus was backing up. There was a group of kids behind walking through and I ran up to slap the door of the bus to get the driver's attention. And it was like, and I was hitting it hard to get, and he was still backing up. So I hit it harder with an open hand and it wasn't proper safety automotive glass. It was like wine glass. So my hand just shattered the glass and went through and your instinctive reaction is to pull it out. And when I pull it, pulled it out, the shards of glass severed my ulnar artery uh, completely. And I almost bled out. It was, it was a, a shocking moment where I thought, this is it. It's done. It's over. You know, there was so much blood and somehow I managed to stay conscious and kind of grip onto my wrist and try to clamp it off and go for help. And that led to the principal rushing me to the local shitty clinic and Australian doctor having to go in with arterial clamps with no pain meds to sever off my artery as they tried to figure out what to do. Wow. So that's going to wake you up real fast to like, this is real. Yeah. And I I think, well, you know, you must've saved those kids. Like I assume the bus stopped. So yeah. Wow. You know, that's such a selfless act. And I think your quote from your Ted talk after that moment was you really surrendered yourself to your own path and you, you stopped running from it. Yeah. So I guess that really woke you up in terms of what you should be doing, what path you should be on in your own narrative. Is that correct? Yeah. And the, the quote that sticks out is the idea of the attempt to escape from pain is what creates more of it. And my whole life, even though I was doing good things and I felt I was, I was going in a direction, a positive direction, there was still this idea of escaping trauma, escaping pain because emotional pain trauma is like at the core it's like incredibly painful it's worse than a broken leg you know i'd rather go have a broken leg than to go through that but it's that idea that you just surrender yourself after that i learned to surrender myself to to this is my path that i'm trying to figure out and i'm going to trust in it 
I'm yes. going to it, but I'm also going to do the work to keep moving me in the direction, right? You can't just surrender yourself to, and try to have this beautiful life manifest itself. You, you have to do the hard work to make it happen. So in combination with holding true to your North Star and what you believe in, you also have to uh, surrender yourself to the universe in a way. So I'm not religious, but I do believe yeah, I'm, I'm very spiritual. And I believe that when you do the work and you stay aligned, that um, your vision will become clear. And I know I'm all about quotes right now, but Dr. Carl Jung, uh, one of his quotes that has uh, really resonated with me is, your vision will become clear only when you can look inside of your own heart. Who looks outside dreams, who looks inside awakes. And wow. it's this idea of like deep internal uh, reflection and uh, it can be difficult, but I think that's, that's what has kind of um, helped me to move forward. And anybody listening to this, who's going through their own struggles, know that within your heart, when you shift the focus from an external locus of control to an internal locus of control, your world will change. You know, wow. you're not, you're not victim to your external circumstances. It's um, really transitioning over to full-time internal locus of control as hard as it is. Right. And you would know this, you've taken control of, of what you're doing. And despite the risk, you would know that you are not judged by others, but you are focused on what is within your control, right? Yeah, it's very true. So, so true there. Um, Andy, I've got, I, I, where can people find you? And can you let the listener know about the Run Your Life podcast? I think you've got over 200 episodes now. Yeah, I appreciate that from one post podcaster to another. I know that you're trying to get your own listenership and and uh, shining the light on other podcasters will only serve you. And it only serves me when I shine the light on other podcasters. So I appreciate that. Um, you can find my podcast at runyourlifepodcast.com. Um, as you said, I have over 200 episodes and I took a little hiatus over the summer to be with my boys and didn't do a lot of episodes, but now I'm back deep into it. I think I have 12 episodes over the next uh, maybe three weeks or something. So uh, that'll keep me busy, but you can find it at run your life podcast. It's on all the major podcast platforms. Um, but yeah, thank you for asking. That's great. Uh, and, and to close out the episode, uh, this is the first time I'm going to try this, but three quick fire questions I have sure. or three zigzag questions since it's not a straight lines about zigzags, you know, I'm just looking for some quick thoughts or answers here. Sure. What gets you up each morning? What drives you or what makes you tick? Awesome. Uh, purpose, meaning getting up, being excited to do my writing, to do my research for my next podcast guest. So it's definitely like waking up to work out and waking up to research um, future learning. That's awesome. Future learning. What advice would you give to your like 22 or 23 year old self coming out of uh, Windsor? Um, you're going to be okay. 
you're gonna be okay you're you're gonna be okay no matter what no matter what shit you go through you're gonna be okay did you have any regrets in your 20s and 30s where you where you learned a lesson that kind of sticks with you uh i i would say that hit the weights you know like the weights yeah hit the weights i had a tremendous ability as a quarterback i could throw the ball 80 yards seriously but i didn't hit the weights until i started university football and i just so wish that I would have hit the weights in high school <laughs> so I didn't get beat up so bad, but um, I would have been uh, more of a physical presence. You know, I was a 5'10", 170 quarterback. Doug Flutie was my idol, um, and I got I got beat up in the pocket, so hit the weights. <laughs> that's awesome, and that's coming from a runner too, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And you know what's you know what's really funny? When you were mentioning punting and clearing, so when I was thinking punting, snow football Canada what was coming to mind for me was Doug Flutie kicking the convert through in punt style and it's so funny that he's one of your idols as well so Andy thanks so much for doing this it's a pleasure to get to know you and for thank you for sharing your your story with the listener and I'm so grateful to have you on thank you Jordan I appreciate it thank you very much what did you take away from our chat today I'd love to know. Let me know on Instagram at it's not a straight line or connect with me on LinkedIn. If this episode was helpful, would you mind leaving me a review on whatever podcast app you use? I'd really appreciate it. You can always go back to previous episodes to hear more insightful conversations to help you build your own unique life. Thanks for listening to It's Not a Straight Line. Until next time.